This week, the mangled bones of our ancient relatives get straightened out. So they have uncrushed it in software to show how it would have looked before it was crushed. And Ebola's toll on mothers-to-be. Pregnant women are just having a really difficult time getting routine care in the Ebola epidemic. Plus, should universities stop making money out of fossil fuels? This is The Nature Podcast for the 5th of March 2015. I'm Jeff Marsh. And I'm Charlotte Stoddart. The Ebola outbreak is finally on the wane in Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone, where it's killed nearly 10,000 people in little more than a year. But it's not over yet, and the final push is proving to be a real challenge for health workers in the region. One group that's suffering the most is pregnant women. Pregnancy complications and dying in childbirth are already common in these countries, even before the outbreak. Now health workers are reluctant to treat them because they see them as an infection risk. The process of pregnancy is messy after all, and Ebola is transmitted through bodily fluids. To make matters worse, even if expectant mothers are virus-free, they may show symptoms that look like they have it. Nature reporter Erica Cech-Hayden was in Sierra Leone in December last year, and this week I gave her a call. While I was in Sierra Leone, I met with a doctor named Benjamin Black from the NGO Doctors Without Borders, and he described just the devastating impact that Ebola is having on all pregnant women, regardless of whether or not they have Ebola. If you're a pregnant woman and you show up to a hospital with symptoms like vomiting, fever, diarrhea, those could be regular symptoms of pregnancy complications, but they could also be symptoms of Ebola. And it's extremely difficult for doctors to tell the difference. So if they treat you, they're basically taking their lives into their own hands. And as a result, we're seeing that pregnant women are just having a really difficult time getting routine care in the Ebola epidemic. And in terms of pregnant women contracting the disease, are they more vulnerable to the virus than the average person? It's not necessarily clear that they're more vulnerable to becoming infected. It's very clear that they're more vulnerable to the effects of the infection. So it seems like pregnant women may die at higher rates than other adults who become infected. And the other really very sad consequence is that their babies just never survive. What makes it difficult for pregnant women to get the correct care then? First of all, it's important to say that a lot of healthcare workers did die because they unknowingly gave care to pregnant women who were infected with Ebola. And just because of the nature of pregnancy and childbirth, it involves bodily fluids, and bodily fluids is the way that the disease is spread. So now what you're seeing is, even if they do show up at the hospital, the staff are reluctant to care for them because they've seen their friends and colleagues die from treating other pregnant women who turned out to have Ebola. So I heard a lot of stories of pregnant women delivering their babies on the triage floor with no help. And just counting the toll of that on maternal health, I think is going to be a big challenge in the coming months, but um, people have projected that it's going to be a really big impact. And has anyone tried to put a number on the, the impact? 
So the UN Population Agency has estimated that just due to declines in being able to access routine care and services like family planning, they actually estimated that as many as 120,000 women could die through this October directly or indirectly just because of the effects of the Ebola epidemic. And I also spoke with researchers who basically projected, you know, based on the reductions in care that they saw for pregnant women in Sierra Leone in just the first six months of the epidemic, they projected that that might cause as much as 20% excess deaths due to maternal mortality. So in other words, 20% more women may have died in the first six months of the epidemic due to the impact on maternal health. There are a lot of people out there trying to help. Have there been any advances made in helping these women? One thing Doctors Without Borders has done in this epidemic is try to find ways to help these women better survive. So Dr. Black, who's the doctor who sort of put me onto this story in the first place, was telling me about just a simple kit that he devised that just contains all the supplies that you would need to treat a pregnant woman with Ebola if she goes into labor. You suit up in your PPE, you grab this kit, and you go in, treat the pregnant woman, and you can be very confident that you won't need to like run out and grab something that you forgot. And in the time that it takes you to run out and get unsuited and get redressed up, the time you get back in, you know, the terrible outcome might have already happened. So through interventions like that, I know Doctors Without Borders told me today, I think they've been able to save the lives of 23 pregnant women with Ebola. That's amazing. I mean, they're not really expected to survive. And the fact that so many have just being treated by this one group that's trying to do things better. So this is a big improvement. And it's sort of, you know, one positive thing that's happened for, for women in this epidemic. Looking a bit further into the future, once the Ebola is, you know, hopefully completely eradicated, will there be wider reaching impacts of this effect on, on maternal health? I think there's definitely going to be an impact. Um, for one thing, pregnant women now, um, after being told to go to the hospital and deliver for so many years, now they're going to be in a situation where they've been turned away from delivering at hospitals when they try to go. So I think that's going to have an impact. There's also been a reduction in the number of hospitals and clinics that are providing just basic family planning supplies. So we may actually see, you know, an increase in pregnancies at the same time as we're seeing fewer women accessing care. So that might be not a very good combination. And it seems like the effects of this are going to kind of ripple out for the months and years to come, even after the epidemic is over. That was reporter Erica Check Hayden, who's now back in San Francisco. And there's more on the mental health toll created by Ebola in the news section this week. Check both those stories out at nature.com slash news. Coming up in the research highlights, scientists flutter their eyelashes in a wind tunnel, plus the life-giving rain that helped humans move out of Africa. But first, who was Homo habilis? We know him as the handyman because the first fossilised remains of this early human were found next to some tools. And we know he lived in Africa, probably alongside Homo erectus. But what exactly did he look like? How big was his brain? And does he really belong in the Homo genus or a more primitive grouping? To answer these questions, a group of scientists has taken another look at the original handyman fossils. Nature editor Henry G joins us to explain their findings. Henry, the first handyman was dug up in Tanzania 50 years ago. 
Why has he become such a puzzling species? It was found in Olduvai Gorge in what is now Tanzania, um, alongside some tools. And uh, what was found, what was um, described as the holotype, in other words, the reference sample of Homo habilis, was the back of a skull, a jawbone and a hand. Um, and ever since then, people have wondered what exactly constitutes Homo habilis. People have found other bones um, and trying to work out whether there was one species of early Homo living in Africa at about that time or more than one. Um, it's become more and more puzzling. And the more discoveries have been made, the more puzzling it gets. So I think uh, this particular paper actually makes the mess messier rather than solving the problem. And are we pretty sure that um, Homo habilis should be a Homo in our genus? No, not at all. Uh, Bernard Wood, who's uh, one of the authorities on Homo habilis, uh, published a paper in Science some years ago saying that what we call Homo habilis was far too primitive compared with later members of the genus Homo, including ourselves and Neanderthals and Homo erectus and some other things, and is more like a, an Australopithecus. Uh, this particular paper adds to and takes away from that idea. Why have scientists taken another look at these original Homo habilis fossils? What we can do now that we couldn't do 50 years ago uh, is scan the material in three dimensions and iron out all the deformities, the deformations that have happened uh, since the bone was buried under sediment and crushed. Uh, so what Fred Spohr and his colleagues have done is taken the back of the skull and the jawbone and have uh, reconstructed what they would have been like in life. So they have uncrushed it in software to show how it would have looked before it was crushed. What did this uncrushing reveal? Looking at the back of the skull, they find that it was probably... Um, Homo habilis had a larger brain than was thought originally, which makes it more like Homo. However, the jawbone looks rather more primitive than it was thought originally. It looks more like Lucy, Australopithecus afarensis, that lived in Ethiopia uh, over three million years ago. Uh, not like what you'd expect in a Homo at all. Uh, so assuming these things came from the same species at all, it shows that... Um, whether this creature was in the genus Homo or not, there was a kind of mosaicism of features among the uh, hominins that lived at the time. And then there's the tool making. We don't know who was making what or when. What we know is there was a great deal of variety in the numbers of species of early hominin and in their various characteristics and in their technological capability. What would you really like somebody to find? What bit of research would you really like to be done to help to solve this Homo habilis puzzle? Because it sounds like there's still a lot we really don't know. I think what would be very nice would be to find some more complete skeletal material of early Homo from this period. Um, in which all the various features that you see from isolated bones are kind of put together recognisably in an individual. That would make 
life a lot easier. Well, I say that now because I expect tomorrow somebody will discover just that and it will actually make life more complicated because it'll show an unprecedented and unsuspected combination of primitive and advanced features. Um, I like to think about this in terms of atomic physics. You know, 50 years ago was the particle explosion. All these new uh, atom smashers came online and found all sorts of different sorts of particle and there was no idea how they fit it into a kind of general model. I think we're in the middle of that now. We're in a kind of hominin explosion. There are all these kind of uh, creatures with different attributes and how they all fit into the family tree, which ones are genuinely in the homo genus, which ones are more closely related to us. No one has any idea. Thanks, Henry. The paper is at nature.com forward slash nature, and there's a news story too. Time for the research highlights now with our favourite baker, Mr Noah Baker. Long and luscious or short and stumpy. When it comes to the perfect eyelash length, mammals have a formula. A US team was interested in the function of eyelashes, common among mammals but mysterious in their purpose. They measured eyelashes in over 20 mammal species, including camels, giraffes, and even a hedgehog. Yes, hedgehogs have eyelashes. The optimal length of eyelashes, for keeping dust out and keeping moisture in, is one-third of the eye's width. The team confirmed this finding in a wind tunnel with an array of fake eyelashes. The Royal Society journal Interface has the paper. Early humans faced a big barrier to moving out of Africa, the weather. Much of the Arabian Peninsula was too dry to provide fresh water and plants to eat. But new work suggests there were wet spells that would have helped. A team based in the UK analysed sediments laid down by ancient rivers in southeast Arabia. The sediment shows evidence for flowing water that came and went over the past 200,000 years or so, probably caused by monsoon rains. As much as modern humans might complain about the rain, it certainly gave our ancestors a migration boost. More in the journal Geology. That was Noah Baker with the research highlights. Now, should universities still be investing in fossil fuels? Nature reporter Richard van Norden has the story. That was a group of students protesting outside University College London earlier this year, urging the college to stop investing in fossil fuels, to divest their dirty endowments. They're just one example of a growing movement across the world, pressurising institutions like universities to go fossil free. The culprit for all this pressure is of course climate change, but the divestment movement is not just moral, it's financial. Over the last decade, green investments have started to look a lot more interesting. Fossil fuel reserves are dwindling, their future is uncertain, and there are lots more opportunities than there used to be to invest in low-carbon industries. A comment piece in Nature this week argues that the key to hitting global warming targets lies in private investment as well as government action. But despite this increasing interest, there's still a long way to go. I called up Ben Caldercott, an economist at the University of Oxford and an advisor to the university in socially responsible investment. 
By the way, he's independent from the team who wrote the comment piece. I started by asking him why everyone isn't making the switch to green investments if their future looks so bright. Because there aren't enough projects. <laughs> it's, it's impossible for the renewable energy industry to absorb all the capital that's currently residing in the fossil fuel industry because it's just it's a different stage of development. It's much smaller. And the thing that, that, that overlays that is uh, the fossil fuel divestment campaign, which has helped kind of speed up that process of awareness, particularly for universities, which um, and other public institutions which are exposed to, to more public scrutiny than other institutions. Many people may not think of universities as big investors. Can you explain why universities are investors? I mean, universities in a European context aren't big investors. Um, they're small endowments, uh, particularly relative to the US. And even in the US, they're small players. So yes, they're investors because they have endowments that are created uh, to support their research activities and their students. Um, and they need to deliver a return on that capital so that the, those endowments can grow and so they can also generate income. So do the campaigners want universities to have less capital? And why would universities go along with what the campaigners were saying if this meant less money for them? I think it depends what, what you're asking endowments to do. Uh, if you're asking an endowment to divest all of its funds from all fossil fuels and then invest all that money in renewables, then you know I think that's a very challenging proposition and I think uh, probably isn't a very profitable one. If you're going, no, we just want you to divest from certain types of fossil fuels, or you know, and there's no additional requirement to invest in renewables, then you can take that money and invest it in anything else. So I think that ask is a bit more manageable. There have been a number of studies that have come out of the last few, last year, year or two, going, okay, well, look, if we had a portfolio of assets excluding certain types of fossil fuel assets, uh, how would that have performed relative to a portfolio portfolio with those assets? Uh, And a lot of those studies have shown that the portfolio excluding fossil fuel assets would have been performing much better. And I guess, you know, it's pretty obvious that had you had a portfolio without fossil fuel assets over the last 12 months, you probably would be doing very well. So why hasn't every university done it then? Even if the case was divesting improved or didn't diminish returns, if that was 100% true, the fact is these are complicated institutions um, with all sorts of processes in place with people who are um, not particularly informed about these issues, particularly climate and the environment. You know, some of the people on the boards of these institutions won't be investment experts either. Some of them will be. That might not be a good thing. You know, it depends on your perspective. Um, so it's, it, I think it'd be unreasonable to just sort of assume um, assume away that human dimension to this. There are precedents, ways of working, norms within investment that make it very hard for something that's blatantly obvious to become true. In this case, you know, I think that the evidence suggests that better financial performance, excluding certain types of fossil fuel. But that isn't 100% of the case all the time. So which universities have we seen making public statements that they will move money away from fossil fuel companies? There are quite a few in the US, the biggest being Stanford. Um, there are quite a few in Australia. University of Glasgow in the UK has two. So I, and I'm sure there are others. I, I, I'm not keeping track of them day to day. But I think the point is that um, this is this has become an issue. Universities are uh, considering these issues. Anyone in the university sector, particularly in the UK university sector, will know that it takes universities quite a long time to, to get behind something like this. 
And so the fact that you've had decisions by Stanford and, and Glasgow, you know, they must have started having these conversations, you know, months, if not a year, a year and a half, two years ago. My university at Oxford University, we're having that conversation. I'm on the, the review committee that's providing guidance to the central university about what to do. I think it's got legs and I think other institutions are thinking about it and I think there'll be further announcements. That was Ben Caldicott talking to Richard Van Norden. The comment piece about green investing is at, you guessed it, nature.com slash news. And we've got even more news for you now as Nature's chief news editor, Celeste Beaver, joins me in the studio. Hi, Celeste. Hi. Now, we are getting towards the final stages of the DARPA Robotics Challenge. For those of us who don't know, what is that? The DARPA Robotics Challenge is a contest to find a robot that could vastly improve our ability to respond to disasters. DARPA, the Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency, is famous for its really blue skies research and also in more recent years for running various robot competitions to spark innovation in particular fields. This contest comes with a final prize of $2 million. And so specifically in this competition, it's geared towards aiding our ability to help with disasters. That's right. Robots that are currently used by humans tend to be in factories and tend to be quite dumb. There were robots sent in in 2011 in the wake of the Fukushima nuclear meltdown, but they were not clever enough to do anything more than kind of survey the damage. What scientists would really like is a much more nimbler, intelligent robot that could work, you know, in conditions where there isn't much connectivity. So without remote control and constant guidance from a human, make decisions about things to look at, be able to do things like walk up steps, which might seem easy for a person. But for a robot, that requires judging the height of the step, adjusting the amount that it lifts its leg, adjusting its balance, which actually are very, very difficult for an automaton. And you mentioned there that there was this non-trivial prize of $2 million, um, presumably that lots and lots of people entered. Yeah, we're getting closer to the final stages now. Later this week, the final 25 robots will be selected and then they will compete for that $2 million prizes. So there's been a lot of winnowing down over various heats um, over the past couple of years. And so tell me a bit about the process then. How did they winnow it down to these 25 finalists? So during trials in December, robots had to do things like shutting off a valve, climbing a ladder, and also driving a car through a winding course. In the final round, they're going to have a time limit. They're going to have to operate without a power source and also at times without any communication from their human operators. And so what sorts of qualities are prevailing? It sounds like there's a a real emphasis towards kind of autonomy. Yeah, that's right. The robots that are able to make judgments for themselves, like deciding, you know, the difference between a cup or a drill, are the ones that seem to be doing better in the contest and are expected to win. Is that a common sort of problem that robots face, cup, drill conundrums? Yeah, well, it's the kind of thing um, a human finds very easy. But um, for a robot, making a distinction like that, particularly if the cup or the drill is at an odd angle, they're just going on, you know, visual cues. They don't have the kind of deep intelligence that would look at why an object had been created, for what purpose. Um, It's those kind of decisions that actually are very difficult for robots to make. So it seems like whilst there's this drive towards autonomy, humans are still, they're not completely redundant yet. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, one way it's being described is as a forming a human robot team so that the robot becomes a useful cooperative teammate for a human and the two kind of work in tandem, each one doing what it's good at. 
there we are. So hopefully this uh, competition will result in robots better equipped to help us out when disaster strikes. The next story today is about quantifying the risk of a particular type of disaster, and that's volcanoes. Who's behind this? That's right. Over the last four centuries, volcanoes have killed 280,000 people. But only now has someone actually quantified the risk that they pose globally to human life. And this assessment comes from the UN. It looked at the 800 million people who currently live near a volcano or within the range of a volcano that could erupt and looked at all kinds of risks. What makes predicting the risk quite hard is, depending on where the volcano is, it can have very different effects. If it's in the Andes, for example, at the top of a high mountain range, it might cause ice to melt and cause flooding. Lower down, it might spew loads of ash that could you know, suffocate people or destroy their um, villages. Right, so different volcanoes bring their own individual set of risks. Yeah, that's right. And so the idea behind this whole process is to better equip risk planners for future eruptions. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one big goal was just to come up with a worldwide ranking. And what the UN found was that Indonesia, people living in Indonesia, account for two-thirds of all people at risk um, from volcanoes. In second place was the Philippines with 10%, followed by Mexico with about 3%. And then the rest of the world's population fall into the final remaining 4%. That sounds like a gargantuan task to catalogue all of these historical eruptions. I mean, where, where did they get all the data from? So they uh, sifted through a database of nearly 9,500 eruptions over the past 10,000 years, um, which is available at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. Now, armed with this knowledge of who is at risk, will it have any practical applications in terms of getting people out? There's a couple of things you can do to mitigate against the risks. If the volcano is wired up, you can predict the eruption to some extent in some cases, The second thing you need is some kind of plan for what you're going to do. But in 2010, um, there was an uh, eruption was predicted at Mount Merapi in Indonesia. Hundreds of thousands of people were successfully um, evacuated. So that's thought to have saved loads of lives and kind of shows that if you have the right information, you can do a huge amount to save people's lives. Is there not just a sort of blanket run strategy from volcanoes? That's probably what I would do if one suddenly erupted in front of me. But in many cases, that's not really feasible. For example, if the volcano um, is on an island and very dominant, such as on the island of Montserrat in um, the Caribbean, in that case, if that volcano is going to erupt, you need to get everyone off the island. So running wouldn't really do much good. If we know that volcanoes are so dangerous, then why is it that there are still, was it 800 million people you said that live within 100 kilometres of one? Yeah, well, actually, when they aren't erupting, um, the areas near volcanoes can be quite attractive. Um, In really hot countries, they can be elevated, so they provide a cooler climate to live in. And volcanic ash makes soil really fertile. So once the eruption's over, um, people want to live there because they can grow stuff there. You just got to read the small print when you buy the plot of land. (laughs) Guess so. Celeste, thanks. And you can read both those stories and more for free at nature.com slash news. That's it for this week. Join us again next time. I'm Charlotte Stoddart. And I'm Jeff Marsh.